0: Hello, this is Dara Whelan and I am the Irish Independence 1916 Project Coordinator. As part of our commemoration coverage, we're bringing you a 10-part podcast series that is looking at the history of the Easter Rising in 10 Objects. It's based on the book, A History of the Easter Rising in 50 Objects, by well-known historian John Gibney, who's already written the biography of Sean Houston for the acclaimed 16 Live series, and he's currently the Glasnevin Trust Assistant Professor at Trinity College Dublin. John, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, Dara. So, John, for our first podcast, we're looking at an Abbey Theatre programme for a play by Thomas McDonough from 1908. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about this play. And it was one that McDonough, of course, it was one of the 1916 leaders, wrote nearly 10 years before the rising.
1: Yeah, it's a programme for a play, and obviously if you go to the theatre these days, whether it's the Abbey or anywhere else, you're going to find someone trying to sell you a programme. And obviously, I mean, performances of plays aren't necessarily recorded unless they're videoed or filmed, which technology didn't exist a century ago. So in some ways, a programme is the only kind of one of the few artefacts you might have from such a play. And the play in question was called When the Dawn Has Come, which was originally submitted to the Abbey Theatre in 1904. Uh, and was written by Thomas McDonough, who later got executed for his role in the Easter Rising, and who was, who was one of the signatories of uh, the 1916 Proclamation. Now, I should say that, um, I mean, unlike today's Abbey productions, you know, the Abbey Theatre of the early 20th century, it basically would put on a play once a week. You know, they went for short runs. It was quite frequent. And um, a programme was a kind of handy thing to have because obviously it was a bit, a bit of extra cash. It reminded the punters that uh, there was a bar, they could get cups of tea or coffee or whatever. In the 1920s, during productions of um, one of Sean O'Casey's plays, they had programmes that actually assured the audience that if they heard gunfire in stay on the stage, not to worry because it wasn't real gunfire from outside, which was happening during the War of Independence. Now, when it comes to um, the programme here... The Abbey programmes are pretty much constant over the years. It was a simple, straightforward format. You just change around the names of the actors in the play. And the play in this case was uh, When the Dawn Has Come, which um, Macdonough had originally submitted to the Abbey Theatre in 1904. Now, uh, Macdonough was um, originally from Tipperary, um, an English teacher who ended up teaching English, French and history in Kilkenny. He joined the Gaelic League, became a fluent speaker, became interested in languages, um, ended up becoming a lecturer in UCD with a particular focus on Elizabethan um, poetry. But like a lot of, you know, English-lit academics, he had illusions that he could write, and could write literature. And in this case, drama. Now, the play itself was apparently uh, set 50 years into the future, during a, what was termed a time of insurrection. And a, it was about a rebellion and... I suppose the, uh, the main characters in it were described as seven captains of the Irish insurgent army, and the story of it is fairly simple. Uh, one of the generals, who was a guy called Torlach McKiernan, he's falsely acclu- accused of being a spy. Now, the soldiers under his command support him, because they know he's such a brave leader, and he's then redeemed by victory on the battlefield, but unfortunately he's mortally wounded in the process. Now, McDonough had described this play as, um, I quote, the story of a young man who has had most to do in getting up the rising. Now, what makes this kind of curious is that, He talks about seven captains of the Irish Insurgent Army. Now, less than a decade later, you could say Thomas McDonough was exactly one of seven captains of the Irish Insurgent Army because his name is one of the seven names that appear at the bottom of the famous proclamation. Now, it's not the case that um, when the dawn has come was some kind of weird prediction, but there's a strange prescience in the fact that he wrote this over a decade before he got involved in uh, the event that led to his execution.
0: Yeah, and it shows you kind of the thinking, like, because we're, I suppose if we're led to believe in terms of the planning for the rising was only the kind of the years leading up to 1916, it certainly wasn't as far back as 1904. Well, it wasn't in this case. It wasn't a, you wouldn't call it a
1: plan for the rising, but it's kind of a little reflection that, um, you know, that kind of militant, kind of separatist nationalism, it simmered around, it was there, it existed. I mean, after the rising, when um, when the British authorities held an inquiry into what had gone on in Dublin, one of the, I think it was a, uh, well, the former, the the incumbent Viceroy, Lord Winborn, Um he commented that the rising was pr- the product of what he described as the Sinn Féin tendency. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he described it as you know, the persistent hatred and opposition of the British connection that was essentially always there at the backdrop of Irish political life. Now, the Easter Rising was planned a couple of years before it broke out. It wasn't planned a decade previously, but that's not to say that people didn't think about it. It happened other rebellions in the past. It was an acceptable and respectable thing for Irish nationalists to venerate the idea of fighting against the British or against anyone else that would threaten the liberty of their country. How was the play received? Badly. Um, he'd submitted basically um, it didn't really go down too well the reviews were lukewarm now McDonough thought that um, it had been badly performed and you have to bear in mind the Abbey wasn't a professional state subsidised institution at that stage Um, there were many many amateur dramatic groups and amateur drama was, um, was an obvious thing for a lot of younger more militant nationalists to get involved in because you met like minded people and you actually got to do something. You got to put on a play. You got to build sets. You got to act badly. You got to practice, you know. I mean, it was a good kind of melting pot for people of diverse backgrounds. Now, at the same time, these weren't kind of big, huge commercial productions. The Abbey is famous because it's associated with, say, Augusta Gregory and William Butler Yeats. Two colourful characters. In the case of Yeats, a genuine literary genius. Now, the catch is, Yeats was interested in the play, but he wasn't particularly impressed with it. Um, now, the, and, you know, it's kind of... Um, it's going kind of... It, you have to bear in mind the play was never performed again, which you might say is diverted verdict of posterity upon the thing. Um, Plunkett continued to revise, or McDonough, I should say, continued to revise it, and he continued his interest in theatre. I mean, in 1914, he became the manager of um, an, an institution called the Irish Theatre Company, which was based on Hardwick Street, which was meant to be a, an alternative to the Abbey Theatre, um, which by that stage, by, the, by 1914, was seen to have gone a bit stale. It had lost its edge. And um, McDonough, if I'm not mistaken, was responsible for staging one of the first productions in Dublin of a play by Henry Gibson. Very
0: farsighted and modern of them at the time. Well, I suppose
1: he was, um, I mean, he wasn't a backward-looking man. He would have been, I suppose, quite a cosmopolitan fella. And being given his day job, he would have been in touch with, say, the literature of the time.
0: Well, I'm fascinated, actually, because, you know, uh, we talk about the rising, we talk about the leaders of it. Uh, and obviously, they were very gaelic and they you know had probably a lot of romantic notions of, of Gaelic Ireland. Um, but yet, McDonough had studied Elizabethan poetry it's not like they were just narrow minded you mentioned uh, Ibsen there as well they weren't just narrow minded they were very much kind of I suppose fin de siècle kind of looking towards the wider European moment at the time Oh definitely I mean um, it's
1: it's wrong to characterise a lot of these people as kind of backward looking reactionary bigots far from it Um, I mean the Gaelic revival as a whole whether I mean whether in the form of the GAA, amateur dramatics, the Gaelic League, it was looking to it looked to kind of wide horizons. People like Michael Hughes looked at other sporting organisations in other countries. Um, Douglas Hyde talked about decolonising the mind, essentially. You know that's why he wanted to revive the Irish language. Um, even look at someone like Patrick Pierce in Saint Enda. Saint Enda was based on the Belgian school model because Belgian schools had to teach in both Flemish and French. You know, so it wasn't the, these these were outward looking people. It wasn't the case that you know. The, the Irish people of a century ago were basically sitting in a darkened room, you know, waiting for someone to bring them the news. You know, they were part of a wider world. And you could say that, you know, even by being part of the British Empire and the UK, you were plugged into a much, much wider world. And they would have had a much, much broader range of experience and uh, information and, and attitudes than, sometimes, than we sometimes give them credit
0: for. What's your take on that whole line about it was a revolution of writers and poets? I think it's a nonsense, to be honest. Um, I think it's a very, it's a, it's a,
1: it's a bit of a romanticised and glib notion and, you know, you can sometimes have to look at the kind of people who argue it and, you know, that's as revealing about it as anything. I'd point people towards William Butler Yeats' play East 1916 and the opening stanza says that I have met them at close of day coming from desktop and counter. Not coming from, say, working down the docks, not coming from a slaughterhouse, uh, not coming from, you know, writing poetry or performing on a stage. The rising was carried out by, I suppose, the skilled working class and the lower middle classes. Now, there were people in the leadership who would have had very different visions. I mean, um, we, we associated the idea of Gaelic revivalism with people like Pearce in particular, McDonough to a certain extent. Sean McDermott and Thomas Clarke might not, might not necessarily have felt that, Um now, it was a fairly common thing for, for young nationalists and radical nationalists to be involved in, say, the Gated League or amateur drama. This didn't make them into poets and playwrights necessarily, you know. Just because you were involved in something don't, doesn't mean that it defines you. And I think it's worth bearing in mind that whatever about the v- visions of Ireland's future that you may have, I always think of um, a line by a guy called P.J. Stevenson who basically said that as far as he and his colleagues were concerned in early 1916 – the ru- what they were basically doing, even though they weren't aware that they were going to be involved in a Rising, but as members of the Irish Volunteers, they felt that the ultimate logic of their position was, as he put it, to have a belt at the bloody British. And w- in many ways, it was as simple as that.
0: And as uh, Thomas MacDonagh wrote in his play, when the dawn comes ten years earlier, uh, he, was <laughs> he was writing about when that day would happen for them eventually. And he may, not have, he may not have envisioned having nothing to do with that day, if that day ever came.
1: But certainly, that's the kind of, they're the kind of things that people thought at the time.
0: Thanks a lot, John. Next week on our History of the Easter Rising in 10 Objects, we'll be discussing uh, the Mosin Nagant rifle from the Oud and finding out why maybe the arms shipment wouldn't have made much difference to the volunteers. John's book, A History of the Easter Rising in 50 Objects, is now out in all good bookshops. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, follow the show on SoundCloud, and you can read, watch and listen to much, much more about 1916 on independent.ie forward slash 1916.